much morning. I'd love for you this morning to take your Bibles, and we're going to be making our way in our Older Testament to an incredible passage of Scripture that I think has direct bearing upon what's happening globally, as well as relevance to the way in which we live our lives very personally. Turn, if you will, to Second Chronicles, where in chapter 18, verse 1, into chapter 19, verse 3, you and I are going to find that a critical decision needs to be made. The Israelites are seeing this growing threat of the Syrian forces, and the question is, what role should they have in regard to Syria, attack, not attack, and so forth? And so, beginning here in chapter 18 and verse 1, you and I are are given these words, which I'm going to read down through verse 11 to get us started. Now, Jehoshaphat had great wealth and honor. And he allied himself with Ahab by marriage. Some years later, he went down to visit Ahab in Samaria. Ahab slaughtered many sheep and cattle for him and the people with him and urged him to attack Ramoth Gilead. Ahab, king of Judah, excuse me, king of Israel, asked Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Will you go with me? against Ramoth, Gilead. And Jehoshaphat replied, I am as you are, my people as your people. We will join you in the war. But Jehoshaphat also said to the king of Israel, First seek the counsel of the Lord. So the king of Israel brought together the prophets, 400 men, and asked them, Should we go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? Go, they answered, for God will give it into the king's hand. But Jehoshaphat asked, Is there not a prophet of the Lord here whom we can inquire of? The king of Israel answered Jehoshaphat, There is still one man through whom we can inquire of the Lord. But I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad. His name is Micaiah, son of Imlah. The king should not say that, Jehoshaphat replied. So the king of Israel called one of his officials and said, Bring Micaiah, son of Imlah, at once. Dressed in their royal robes, the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones at the threshing floor by the entrance of the gate of Samaria with all the prophets prophesying before them. Now Zedekiah, the son of Kenaniah, had made iron horns, and he declared, This is what the Lord says, With these you'll go, the Arameans, until they are destroyed. And all the other prophets were prophesying the same thing. Attack Ramoth Gilead and be victorious, they said, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. So now we're going to be asking ourselves in the midst of competing, conflicting voices, how do you discern God's will? Let's look to God in prayer. Now there are a lot of people in these services, Father, that right now are trying to discern your will. It could be that they're sitting right now at an intersection. Do I go forward? Do I turn left? Do I turn right? Or do I turn around and go back where I came from? We're faced with the intersections of life. And each one here has decisions that are made on daily basis about work and family, 
health and finance, present and future. And what we need, Father, is to be able to discern your will. As a congregation, we've learned that to discern your will, we've got to be people who are in your word. And we can't separate them out from each other. So it's your word that we're going to be focusing upon this morning, thinking through together, examining verse by verse, relating truth to life. So, Father, as we consistently pray, warm our hearts, engage our minds, come here to see Jesus and Him only. Praying these things again out in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you've been watching very carefully the news over the weekend, and if you woke up early this morning to check out what's happening in the Middle East, you're already processing what I'm about to read. Israel launched its second airstrike in three days in the Syrian capital Sunday, targeting a shipment of extremely accurately guided Iranian-made missiles intended for Lebanon's Hezbollah militant group, according to an intelligence official in the Middle East. The attack, which signaled a sharp escalation of Israel's involvement in Syria's bloody civil war, was confirmed by the Associated Press hours after Syria's state media reported that Israeli missiles struck a research center near Damascus, setting off explosions and causing casualties. Israel has said it will not allow sophisticated weapons to flow from Syria to the Lebanese Hezbollah militia, an ally of Syrian President Bashar Assad and a heavily armed foe of the Jewish state. The irony of what's happening this weekend is that the passage we're looking at this morning pertains to an Israeli attack upon Syria. This passage is the third of three major campaigns that were conducted by Israel against Syrian forces, which in that day were known as the Arameans. Now, what we want to do is, we're looking very carefully, is to put ourselves in a position where we are involved in decision-making. In the epicenter of the Middle East, if you were Benjamin Netanyahu's advisor, part of an advisory board, how would you counsel him with regard to Israel and its relationship to Syria? Now bring it home and ask yourself now, what critical decisions am I facing in my everyday personal experience? Where are my threats? Where am I prone to be on the defensive? And what response should I have? We're going to be looking simultaneously, globally, and personally in these verses. And what I want to do for those of us who are involved in decision-making, which means every one of us, is to draw out once again three significant recommendations here in these verses on what to do when we are facing critical decisions. And the first is found in verse 1 down through verse 11, and we're going to phrase it like this. When facing critical decisions, number one, seek God's counsel, even when the majority seems disinterested. Now, we're going to flush this out together. And so, as we begin in verse 1 of this 18th chapter, we're introduced to people by the names of 
Jehoshaphat. He is the king of Judah to the south. And Ahab, who is the king of the tribes to the north. Now bear in mind that there's been a division in the land. And so now there's the northern tribes known as Israel, the southern tribes known as Judah. But now we find that there is a very uneasy and unusual alliance. For you see, Jehoshaphat and Ahab are now connected in family gatherings. Their children married each other. Pick it up in verse 1. Now Jehoshaphat had great wealth and honor, and he allied himself with Ahab by marriage. Now Ahab's wife's name was Jezebel. Jezebel brought Baal worship false spirituality into the land of Israel. Jehoshaphat, on the other hand, sought God, walked with God, desired God. What we find now is that in this extended family, there are competing spiritualities. Whenever I'm doing premarital counseling, along the way I try to understand something about the background of the families. Because you do not merely marry a person, you marry into a family. And when you marry into a family, you marry into cousins and relatives who may have various values, beliefs, and worldviews, who have varying degrees of influence, not only upon your relationship with your spouse, but also upon your children, your grandchildren, when babysitting occurs and other such matters arise. You need to be intensely aware in your critical decision-making of the various alliances and entanglements that you have in your own personal sphere. And what influence do those people bring into your extended family context? It's the wise person who's always thinking through the entanglements of life. Because your entanglements will affect your decisions. Now here is Jehoshaphat who walks with the Lord and Ahab who walks with a counterfeit God. And they are connected because their children are married to one another. And yet in the midst of it all, these two kings are about to embark upon a critical decision. You'll notice here, then verse 2, he goes down to visit Ahab in Samaria. In other words, Jehoshaphat is on Ahab's turf. Ahab slaughtered many sheep and cattle for him. They're celebrating the arrival of Jehoshaphat. The emotions are intense and strong. But then there's a word here, the Hebrew, that stands out to me. In the midst of the celebration in honor of Jehoshaphat, Ahab urges, it's a very intense word, urges Jehoshaphat to attack Ramoth-Gilead, which has come under the rule and reign of the Syrians. Ahab, king of Israel, asked Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, will you go with me against Ramoth-Gilead? Was this a ploy? Was he being set up? Is all this celebration in order to reduce his spiritual convictions so that he will just readily say yes and go to war with the tribes to the north which do not seek the counsel of God? How do your entanglements begin to slowly disarm you when it comes to critical decision-making? Jehoshaphat replied, I am as you are, and my people as your people. We will join you in the war. Never underestimate what is said first in a conversation. Did he say this impulsively? Or did he say this with inner conviction? But there's a caveat. I don't want you to miss it. Notice what he adds here. First seek the counsel 
of the Lord. Now, this goes right back once again to what you and I have been talking about from 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, with regard to the way in which we are to be relating as a nation, as a culture, as individuals to God. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, and what? Seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. In other words, now what Jehoshaphat wants Ahab to do, first things, seek God's word. First seek the counsel of the Lord. The word counsel here pertains to the word of the Lord. The prophets of old were the deliverers of God's word. In other words, what does God's manual have to say about this? The kings were responsible for knowing the book of Deuteronomy, particularly when it came to matters of when and how and why they should go to war. Let us then seek, he's saying in essence, the word of the Lord. So now here's Ahab, who first thing wants to go to war to regain what he'd lost. And here's Jehoshaphat, who first thing wants to seek the word of the Lord to find out what God has to say about this particular situation. Yea or nay. Now likewise, when you find yourself emotionally, relationally entangled in alliances, and you've got some critical decisions to make, And maybe like Jehoshaphat, you're being asked in the midst of a party, will you join me in such and such, in an extended family gathering? How do you go about objectively analyzing the will of the Lord? Again, never separate the will of the Lord from the word of the Lord. That's why we work hard week by week on God's word. So now ask yourself, what are my relational entanglements? Verses 1, 2, 3. Am I willing to maintain the authority of God's word in the midst of the relationships I find myself in? Or am I not? Now this is critical. We've got to be able to ask ourselves, Are we willing to do such things? Jehoshaphat did. Ahab did not. I came across this story in history from King Henry IV of France, who once asked a particular duke if he had observed the great eclipse of the sun that had recently occurred. No, was the response. I have so many conflicts to deal with. I don't have any time to look up. How about you? Isn't that really an illustration here of Ahab? He's got so much in terms of conflict, he's got little time to look up, so instead he'll just look around rather than look in, look into the Word of God. So now, look what comes next. In verse 5, the king of Israel brought together the prophets, in other words, the royal clergy of the tribes of the north, bearing in mind that Ahab was married to Jezebel, who brought Baal worship into the land from the Phoenicians. 400 of them, large number, and asked them, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? Go, they answered, for God will give it into the king's hand. Notice there the, the exclamation point. They're affirming what Ahab wants. But never assume that our preferences are God's will. In this particular case, God's will is tied to God's word very clearly. 
What Ahab needed to do is what you and I will ponder is in terms of what appears on the screen at this point. Kings of old were given the responsibility of trying to discern true versus false spirituality. Am I listening to a true prophet? Or am I listening to a false prophet? Likewise, in this culture today, we're dealing with true versus false spirituality. Am I listening to God's word? Or a subtle substitute for God's word? A misinterpretation or a misapplication of? In Deuteronomy chapter 13, in verse 1, the royalty would be responsible for knowing this. If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a miraculous sign or wonder, and if the sign or wonder of which he has spoken takes place, and he says, let us follow other gods. In other words, it's possible for the miraculous to be produced through false spirituality. Gods you have not known such as these prophets who were tied to Baal worship. Let's worship them. You must not listen to the words of the prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart, with all your soul. It's the Lord your God you must follow on. You must revere Keep his commands and obey him. Serve him and hold him fast. And again in chapter 18. I'll raise up for them a prophet like you from among, all the, among their brothers. Now he's referring to that ultimate prophet you know as Jesus. I'll put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him. If anyone does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name, I myself will call him to account. If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. Do not be afraid of him. Jesus would say, Watch out for false prophets in Matthew 7, verse 15. Paul would write, test everything, hold on to the good, avoid every kind of evil, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now, in the midst of the false mingled with the true spiritualities in our land today, which shapes the thinking of people today and the way in which we go about addressing critical decisions in our lives. Are you developing the capacity to distinguish the true from the false? And are you developing the capacity to distinguish the right from the wrong? Effective parenting requires this. Effective congregations embrace this. Our nation needs this. Go, they answered. They say, go. For God will give it into the king's hand. The end of the Battle of Britain, British Vice Marshal Alexander Adams was driving to his headquarters. We came upon a sign on a road. Road closed. Unexploded bomb present. Adams called over the officer on duty, hoping he might be able to uh, hear of an alternative route. Sorry, you can't go through, said the officer as he approached the car. The bomb's likely to go off at any minute now. But then he caught sight of Adams' uniform. Oh, sir, I'm very sorry, sir, he said. I didn't know... It was you, our commander. It's quite all right for you to go through. (laughs) See where we're going with this? 
if we can't distinguish in our homes, in our churches, in this nation, true versus false spirituality, what road are we setting ourselves on? What path are you taking? Are you applying the tests of Deuteronomy 13 and 18? In the next verse, Jehoshaphat asked, Is there not a prophet of the Lord here whom we can inquire of? Now bear in mind, they're all clergy. All of them are prophets. But just because a prophet is a prophet doesn't mean it's profitable to listen to that prophet, is it? So now, the king of Israel, in verse 7, answers Jehoshaphat. There is still one man through whom we may inquire. The Hebrew word is seek. Seek of the Lord. But I hate him because he never prophesies anything good. Anything good about me. But always bad. His name is Micaiah. Or for Midwesterners, Micaiah, from Musketeers, Mickey, son of Imla. And the king should not say that Jehoshaphat replied. You can almost see him wagging his finger at Ahab, you see, his, his in-law counterpart. Now, what we need is to be able to discern truth. We need to be able to find integrity in the midst of the majority. Can we find it? Now, dressed in their royal robes in verse 9, the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones at the threshing floor by the entrance to the gate of Samaria. The gate of Samaria was the capital of the northern tribes. Jehoshaphat's being given high honor. He's being allowed to sit on a throne at the gate of the capital of the northern tribes, which had seceded from the southern tribes. But when you would see this sort of thing set out in the midst of the population, this would indicate to the people that there was a military tribunal taking place where decisions would be made as to whether or not to go to war. And the kings are soliciting the advice of their advisors, the prophets. So they're now dressed in their royal robes. And the prophets are prophesying before them. And Zedekiah, well, what does he do? He uses the visual to illustrate the verbal. He made iron horns and he declared, this is what the Lord says. With these you'll go the Aramaeans, the Syrians, in other words, until they're destroyed. Notice, he's dogmatic. This is what the Lord says. But does dogmaticism about what the Lord says assure that this is what the Lord says? Or is one willing to take the time to investigate the Scriptures to see what God's Word truly says? Have they pondered Deuteronomy 13 and 18 and measured now the statements of this prophet against the word of the Lord? This prophet is declaring the supposed will of the Lord. Now the question for Jehoshaphat and Ahab is, how does this compare with the word of the Lord? Is it consistent? Or is it contradictory? Now, likewise, in your decision-making, you've got to ask yourself when you gain the various advice and perspectives of those who are part of your extended circle and those relational entanglements, is this consistent with the Word? Or is this in conflict with the Word? Because the majority opinion is not necessarily the authority of Scripture. The majority opinion found in this culture is not synonymous with the authority of the Word found in God. 
Beware of putting the cultural above the scriptural. Which is exactly now what they're doing and they fail to make distinctions. When facing critical decisions, number one, seek God's counsel. In other words, God's word. Even when the majority seems disinterested. Now, first things first. Once you have worked that out, there's still more to be thought through. Here's a second recommendation. Number two, when seeking, when facing critical decisions, number two, seek God's counsel, even though the consequences could be painful. Watch what unfolds beginning in verse 12. The messenger who had gone to summon Micaiah said to him, Look, as one man, the other prophets are predicting success for the king. Let your word agree with this and speak favorably. Look at Micaiah's response now in verse 13. Stay focused. I hear the beeping. But Micaiah said, as surely as the Lord lives, I can tell him only what my God says. No alterations. And I thought about that. Because while we were having our Christmas Eve service, nationally and globally on CNN, Pierce Morgan was interviewing Rick Warren. On Christmas Eve, Morgan used his interview with Rick Warren to charge that, quote, the Bible and the Constitution were very well intended, but are basically inherently flawed thus requiring an amendment to the Bible, quote-unquote. The CNN host, the Pierce Morgan tonight, pointed to a passage that states in the Old Testament, adultery is punishable by being stoned to death, upon which Warren replied, That was civil law for the nation of Israel to be distinguished from moral law that has wider application for all times. Good answer. But Pierce Morgan responded that the Bible should be amended based on changing cultural viewpoints, particularly same-sex marriage, hence the need to amend it. My point to you about gay rights, for example, it's time for an amendment to the Bible, Pierce Morgan stated. Warren's reply, no. The host then said to Warren that Warren should, quote, compile a new Bible, unquote. Not a chance. Quote, unquote, Pastor Warren responded. And then added, culture changes, opinion changes, but truth doesn't. We're going to agree to disagree on that, Morgan stated. What we have just done here is to lift the shades a bit and allow for ourselves to look through the window into the culture of today and see how people view the scriptures and how people view the culture. Is the issue one of majority or is the issue one of authority? And is the majority the authority or is it not? Because I would again argue that in same-sex marriage issues of today, 
the ultimate issue is not one of sexuality. The issue is not sexuality. The issue is authority. The issue is who says. Who defines marriage? And if you go back to the context of when marriage was first instituted, it was not instituted by the culture. It was instituted by God who created the culture. And so the designer has the authority to provide the definition. Again, what we're arguing for then is that in the mixed spirituality, nationally and globally, and in the entangled relationships that we have spiritually, we've got to have a firm understanding of the realm of authority before we can even talk about matters of sexuality or other such things in this culture. Once we've got our authority issue worked out, then we can move forward. But for Pius Morgan and his ilk, the challenge is is that the majority, in his estimation, shaped the idea of the authority. What we are saying here is that it is divinity not the majority, who shaped the whole matter, who shapes the whole matter of authority. Back to that text. Do you see how relevant this is? The messenger who had gone to summon Micaiah said to him, Look, verse 12, as one man, the other prophets are predicting success for the king. So let your word agree with this. Speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As surely as the Lord lives, I can tell him only what my God says. This is a prophet speaking here. When he arrived, the king asked him, Micaiah, Shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? I wish we were there to watch the facial expressions on Micaiah at this point. I can almost imagine the tilting of the head, the squinting of the eyes, the half curl of the lip on one side, as he now looks at Ahab and says, Yeah, attack. Be victorious. They'll be given into your hand. Well, Ahab's picked up on this. Ahab turns to Jehoshaphat and says, How many times must I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? He's looking at Jehoshaphat, and he's looking at Micaiah. Irony. Ahab wants truth? Ahab wants truth? after he's embraced 400 prophets of false spirituality and married Jezebel, who's brought Baal into the land, and now he's wanting truth? Unexploded bomb here. Micaiah answered, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, These people have no master. Let each one go home in peace. In other words, he's just given a a parable of what's about to happen to Ahab. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, you see, you see, didn't I tell you that he never prophesies anything good about me but only bad? But now you and I are given a glimpse into the heavens. Micaiah continued, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on the throne with all the host of heaven, standing on his right and on his left. Now, bear in mind, Micaiah has been standing, looking at thrones to his left and to his right. Ahab, Jehoshaphat. They've got their counsel around them and their prophets who are saying, Go to war, go to war, go to war. But now what the writer is doing here is he's contrasting the earthly with the heavenly. And here's now the heavenly council. And here's God sitting on his throne with all the host of heaven standing on his right and on his left. 
And the Lord said, Who will entice Sahab, king of Israel, into attacking Ramoth Gilead and going to his death there? One suggested this, another that, and finally a spear came forward, stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. By what means, the Lord asked. I'll go and be a lying spear in the mouths of all his prophets, he said. You'll succeed in enticing him, said the Lord. Go and do it. So now the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouths of these prophets of yours. The Lord has decreed disaster for you. So now, is God the source of deception? So now you're leading your neighborhood Bible study, and you're walking them through Second Chronicles, and you get now to this portion of the 18th chapter, And you have been so burdened to see somebody come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, and they look up at this Bible that you have placed in their hands so they can follow along with this teaching. And they're perplexed because you have said all along, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. You have said that Jesus Christ is God. God is truth. Therefore, how do I manage this passage of Scripture? So how will you manage it? Let me give you several recommendations. The first is this. Distinguish between God's permissive will and God's directive will. God does permit evil to take place in this world, doesn't he? God permitted Judas to betray Jesus, didn't he? There is permissive will as well as directive will. This is God's permissive will. A second perspective to add. God is sovereign over evil without being the source of evil. Let me say that again. God is sovereign over evil without being the source of evil. He was sovereignly involved in all the matters that led to Jesus being put on that cross. A third perspective. Ahab hardened his heart to such a degree that he was only willing to listen to false prophets, false spirituality, even to the point of marrying Jezebel, who would bring Baal worship into the land. In other words, what God is saying is he is going to allow Ahab to experience the demise of his own instrument of choice. Deception. Lie. Finally, The reality is this speaks of God's truth. If he were deceiving, he wouldn't have announced this in advance. But he did. He is truthfully stating to Ahab, you have been vulnerable to deception and have embraced the instruments of your own demise. So in his permissive will, Ahab Have it your way. We never want God to reach a point in our decision-making where God, in essence, is saying, have it your way. But I've, I've said here, haven't we, as we're looking very carefully at this second significant recommendation about decision-making, that we're to seek God's counsel even though the consequences could be painful, and they're very painful to the messenger who in this culture will find that the P.S. Morgans and others can't distinguish between the message and the messenger. Then Zedekiah, son of Canaanah, went up and slapped Micaiah in the face. Which way did the Spirit from the Lord go when he went from me to speak to you, he asked. 
I love Micaiah's response, don't you? You'll find out on the day you go to hide in the inner room. The king of Israel then ordered, take Micaiah, send him back to Ammon, the ruler of the city, to Joash, the king's son, and say, this is what the king says, put this fellow in prison, give him nothing but bread and water. Where do we get that expression from today? Until I return safely. Safely? He's listening to the majority, but he's not listening to divinity. Micaiah declared, if you ever return safely, the Lord has not spoken through me. Then he added, mock my words, all you people. In essence, he's saying, test me, according to Deuteronomy 13 and 18. Test me. Because one of the five tests of prophecy was whether or not predicted prophecy, prophecy comes true. Leads us now to our third significant recommendation. When facing critical decisions, thirdly, seek God's counsel even when the peer pressure is great. Jehoshaphat's facing peer pressure. The extended family combined with the fact that he is in the north. He's not on his home turf. He's got all these prophets around him, and his one prophet he's been relying upon has been imprisoned. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went up to Ramoth-Gilead. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I'll enter the battle in disguise, but you wear your royal robes. Such a deal. So the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Keep evaluating your entanglements when you ponder your decisions. Look for the peer pressure in the midst of your alliances. Now the king of Aram, that's Syria, had ordered his chariot commanders, do not fight with anyone small or great except the king of Israel. When the chariot commander saw Jehoshaphat, they thought, this is the king of Israel. So they turned to attack him, but Jehoshaphat cried out, and the Lord helped him. God drew them away from him, for when the chariot commander saw that he was not the king of Israel, they stopped pursuing him. What was Jehoshaphat's thinking, really? But let me ask you this. When you become entangled in this kind of relational, spiritually confusing culture, don't you find so often that there is this sense of foolishness about you? Not you personally, but just about you, around you, in decision-making that's occurring. And the disguises that people are wearing. So now, here is Ahab who thinks thinks that his disguise works, but you see, you can't disguise yourself from God, can you? Someone drew his bow, in verse 33, at random. At random? And hit the king of Israel between the sections of his armor. The king told the chariot driver, wheel around and get me out of the fighting. I've been wounded. All day long the battle raged. The king of Israel propped himself up in his chariot facing the Arameans until evening. And then at sunset he died, prophecy fulfilled. But something more is at stake here as well. Jehoshaphat is of the line of David and Solomon leading to Jesus. Had Jehoshaphat died in battle, God's promise would have been nullified because that would have been the end of the promise that leads to Jesus Sometimes God's got to step into the foolishness of decision-making in order to continuously fulfill the promise that's necessary pertaining to Jesus Christ and his relationship to his people. He intervenes in the battles of our lives. So when Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, returned safely to his palace in Jerusalem, Jehu the Seah, the son of Hanani, went out to meet him and said to the king, Really not. She did help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord. Because of this, the wrath of the Lord's upon you. 
There is, however, some good in you, for you have rid the land of the Ashrapoles and have set your heart on what? Underline this. Seeking God. How did this begin? Verse 4. Jehoshaphat had said to Ahab, first seek the counsel of the Lord. How did this end? Jehu saying, we have watched and observed, and generally speaking, you have set your heart, quote, on seeking God. Which takes us right back to 2 Chronicles 7.14 that appears on the screen. If my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and what? Seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal from their land. And God stays involved with us, even in the most difficult relationships we find ourselves in. Are you seeking God and seeking Him first for your life? Let's stand together. There is such practical perspective, Father, in these verses. We see so much humanity here, but we also see deity here our God breaking in to keep his promised plan of bringing Jesus into this world. If there's anybody here today who's placing himself or herself in foolish battles, remove them from the scene, Father. Pull them out. Secure them. And remind them, keep seeking you and you alone. So we praise you and we thank you for the way you guide us and direct us. And we give you now all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.